Well, if you're newer to our church, we're in a series called Home, where we have been talking about what does it mean for, for, to, make our, to find our home, to make our home in God. And we're in the second half of our series, we're talking about exile. And I found, actually, this metaphor has been very meaningful to many of you. Many of you have shared with me how much you've resonated with trying to find, trying to make your home while you feel like you have an experience of exile. And what we're doing is kind of looking at some of these prophets, some of these ancient roads, these people who wrote and dreamed and imagined. They wrote poetry 2,000 years ago. So we're looking at some of what they've written. We've looked at Jeremiah a couple weeks ago, and we're in a little bit of four-week stretch with Daniel. And then we are going to—I'm excited. I really am excited. If you haven't noticed, Ezekiel. We're going to do a week of it. I'm just excited. If you've never read Ezekiel, just you'll know why. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to preach it, but I'm so excited. It is a crazy book. It's really long. But four weeks in Daniel. Daniel's a little easier. Uh, last week we talked about, if you've ever read Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's trying to make his home in Babylon, but he wants to remain Jewish. He wants to, he wants to not become Babylonian, right? We talked about living in exile means how, at least in the Jewish days, how do you be a Jew in a culture that doesn't want you to be Jewish? In our day, we would say, how do you be a Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to be Christian? And I think Daniel will help us, will continue to help us. And last week, we talked about how Daniel said, I'm not going to eat the food that's cooked in the king's kitchen. I'm going to feed on faith, hope, and love. That's what we talked about. And I really think the next three weeks with Daniel, that's really what we're going to lean into. And it's going to be basic truths. Honestly, what we're going to talk about today is so basic. But Christianity is really simple truths taken deeply. And I think first service was blessed by spending some time thinking about some very basic truths. They're really important. We're going to mostly talk about faith or trust and hope today. And I want to start with a little story. I get emails from Sky Jatani. I, he's a thoughtful guy. Some of you know Sky Jatani. I like Sky. Um, you may not agree with everything he says, but I get an email from him Monday through Friday. It's actually not just to me. I know the paces get it too. It's not just a bunch of us get it. But, but he sends out an email a few weeks ago. He ended with this story. He was talking about trusting in the spirit or trusting in the flesh. And this is how he ended. It was just a little story. He said, years ago, I was with Dallas Willard at a pastor's retreat where he spoke about the importance of trusting the spirit rather than our flesh. And he offered this hypothetical situation to illustrate Paul's point. Imagine a research study definitively concluded beyond any doubt that putting bright pink offering envelopes in the seat backs at church led people to tithe 50% more. What would you do, he asked. Should you keep using the plain white envelopes and trust God to supply what the church needs, or should you switch to the bright pink envelopes? Which I can totally imagine. I mean, I've been at these kind of pastor conferences, and you don't want to look stupid when you're with other pastors, and so there's discussion groups that break out, and they're vigorous, and the pragmatic pastors are saying that they would use the pink envelopes, but they were worried that it would mean that they were trusting in the flesh. And the idealists wanted to say, well, I'm sticking with the white envelopes, but they confessed that they were afraid that they might be underfunded. (laughs) And so after about 15 minutes of debate, the pastors finally looked to Dallas to solve the conundrum. What's the right answer, one of them asked him. I know you're thinking, don't you want to know? This is my place to be like game show host and just make you wait with suspense, right? What's behind door number two? I was watching watching an old episode of Deal or No Deal, and nobody drew it out better than Howie Mandel, man. That's crazy. But what's the right answer, one of them asked. 
And Dallas smiled and answered, You should use the pink envelopes, of course, but you should not trust the pink envelopes. I like that. In fact, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to let you think about that one for a minute. But there's something there. What are you trusting? That's what we're going to talk about today. So Daniel chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. What we're going to do is kind of do an overview of Daniel 2 through 4. We'll read the most from Daniel 2. We'll read a little from Daniel 3. I'm not going to read anything from Daniel 4, but if you want to go home and read, I mean, this is action-packed chapters of the Bible. Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the empire that's dominating the world at that time, in the second year of his reign, he had dreams. And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. That's why I entitled this morning, Trouble Sleeping. The most powerful man in the world is anxious and has trouble sleeping. Why? His dream. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And the king stood before the king. In verse 3, the king said, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream." Now what's going to happen, and you're going to see, we're going to contrast Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, with these four Jewish men, Daniel and primarily Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may know, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know that story. We'll read it today. But Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, and he's anxious, and he can't sleep, and so he brings in the wisest people. And this is what, if you keep reading, this is what he says. I had a dream. It's troubling me. I want you to tell me what the dream is and, and then what it means. And they're like, well, we can't do that, but tell us what the dream is and we'll tell you. And he's like, no, I'm not playing that game. So that's the scenario. And so they're all like, ah, uh, no, you need to tell us the dream. And so we pick up in verse 12. Because of this, they said, we won't tell you the dream. It's impossible. You need to tell us the dream. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Is that a leader you want to follow? Does that sound like the paragon of, like, maturity? Tell me my dream. If you can't, I'm going to kill you, right? But that's that's what he did. We'll talk more about Nebuchadnezzar as we keep going. So this decree goes out, and they go to track down Daniel and his companions to kill them. And the captain of the king's guard, Ariok, comes to Daniel, and he's going to kill him. And Daniel says in verse 15, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Why are we so um, reactive? Why why does this have to be done so soon? And so Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Give me me a little bit of time to seek from God this insight that you want. Is that okay? The king said, all right, I'll give you a little bit of time. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to their Jewish names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. I actually like that because if you are aware of some of the things, some of the things that have happened in our church family, there's been some medical issues, even a a couple deaths in our church family. There's been some difficult things. And I've been in a few situations recently where I've not been sure what to pray, what to ask for. And I have found it very freeing to simply ask God for his mercy. 
Sometimes when you don't know what to pray, just ask God for mercy. I've even prayed with people, Lord, I don't know what to ask you right now. So I'm just going to ask for your mercy. If you feel like you don't know what to ask, ask for God's mercy. Daniel says, let's ask for his mercy. We don't want to be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And they asked for mercy. In verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blesses the God of heaven. One of the things that Daniel is going to, we're going to, I'm going to read this because I want you to see what Daniel says. It's really important to Daniel. As we keep going, you're going to realize Nebuchadnezzar probably doesn't like all that Daniel's saying. Daniel's going to say this about who God is. We'll look at it. And then Daniel's going to go to Nebuchadnezzar and he's going to, he's going to try to explain how he now knows the dream and what it means. And we're going to come back to this at the end, but I I want you to see that Daniel can't tell the story of what happened without mentioning his God. I think that's so important. I do a lot of thinking. I talk a lot about how we write stories. It's one of the things that makes us uniquely human, is that we take whatever information we have at our disposal, and 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 we organize it in a way that makes sense in a story. That's how our brain works. That's how God has designed us to work. And sometimes we write good stories with us. Sometimes we write really bad stories and we have to correct those stories. You realize that as you live with other human beings for a while. But I think there's something special when you're at the place where you're telling a story about what's happened in your life and you can't tell the story without talking about your God. (laughs) We'll come back to that at the end. So let me tell you what Daniel has to say about his God. Blessed be the name of God, of Yahweh, forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. This is the God who is in control. This is the Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control, but Daniel knows God is in control. He changes times and seasons. He's the one who actually holds the authority to remove kings and set up kings. And he's the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel has wisdom and understanding, but it comes from his God. He has no other way to explain it. This God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel's going to, again, as I said, continue on. He's going to talk about what this God has done. He's going to be very, he's going to be very wise in even how he addresses Nebuchadnezzar. You can keep reading. But then we're going to get to this actual dream, because I want to talk about the dream. Verse 31, Daniel, before Nebuchadnezzar, you, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty, you're going to have to use your imagination, and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And Nebuchadnezzar, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together, all these, they were broken in pieces. And they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. Or you and I could think like powder just blowing in the wind, right? The wind carried them away. Not a trace. Not a trace could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a mountain. If you read out of the prophets, you would recognize. They became a mountain. I'm going to come back to that and filled the whole earth. And now Daniel is going to interpret this dream. And so he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar, so you're the gold head. 
you're the current king of the current kingdom who is reigning the dominant empire in the world. But you're only going to last a while and another kingdom's going to come. It's represented by the silver and then another kingdom, the bronze, and then the iron. There's other kingdoms coming after you. And then there's going to be the stone that becomes a, a mountain. And I want to read to you how Daniel then describes in verse 44 the stone that becomes a mountain. And in the days of those king, the God, kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke into pieces iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Again, you can't understand this apart from knowing the God of Daniel. And then Daniel says with unbelievable confidence, the dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar is having nightmares. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but let me say it this way. And I, I want you to be able to think about this. If we are going to be a people who make our home in modern day Babylon, you and I have to have the wisdom, the insight to be able to recognize that the nightmares of Babylon are what the prophets always dreamed about. That the nightmare of the emperor in Babylon is the dream of the people of God in exile. <laughs> that Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. My kingdom's not going to last forever. There's going to be other kingdoms after mine, and my kingdom is going to become chaff in the wind. That's haunting. Nebuchadnezzar's on the top. And the only way to go is down. <laughs> and, and to think that there's a God out there who has more power and authority than I do, who is going to reign forever, and it's not going to be me, somebody else is going to reign forever. It's a nightmare to Nebuchadnezzar. But it's the dream of the prophets, isn't it? This is what the prophets always dreamed about, that God would set up his own kingdom. That these empires who have rebelled against God and tried to rule the world and shape history according to their own agenda would finally be overthrown by God and it would be God ruling the world. That what the people of God hope for the most is what the empires of humanity fear the most. That the reign of God will at last be seen on the earth bringing justice to all people. That God, like, like this stone that becomes a mountain, that God would fill the earth with his own empire and it will never be destroyed or conquered. It will stand forever. And how do the prophets? I mean, if you're sitting there wondering, do I want that? I don't, do I want this stone? To, uh, let me just describe to you the way the prophets describe this kingdom. And you decide if it's a dream or a nightmare. No more death, and no more tears, and no more war or disease, no more poverty, no more oppression, no more slavery, no more exclusion, no more hatred, and no more starving. It's a nightmare to Babylon. It's a dream of the people of God. And I want to go a little bit further. Remember, remember we said a few weeks ago, we looked at Jeremiah talking about this new covenant or this branch, and, and, I, and I got really excited, and you guys kind of even laughed. And I was like, ooh, am I getting too excited? I don't care. But Jeremiah said, the days are coming. Remember that? The days are coming. And we said, when, Jeremiah? He said, I don't know, but they're coming. Or Isaiah said, 
on that day. On that day. We say, Isaiah, what day? I don't know, but it's coming. And we walk, because we're people who are shaped by the story in this book, we walk in that narrative. And we get to Luke chapter 4. I don't think I read this before. I mean, I have another, but I don't think I read this a few weeks ago. Jesus, God in human flesh, walks into the synagogue to gather with the Jewish people to worship. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Reads from Isaiah dreaming about this kingdom, this return from exile. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord, he's reading, is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And I don't have a slide for this, but Jesus rolls up the scroll. He hands it to the attendant. He sits down. Everyone's looking at him. And Jesus says, today. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Not on that day. Not the days are coming. The day has come in Jesus. So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey this morning, I do want you to hear that as an invitation. It's an invitation to come home to Jesus. Because today's your day. Because Jesus Christ reigns as Lord. And when when you and I can repent, when we can acknowledge our need for him, that he's in control. We're going to talk about that. He's in control and we're not in control. He's Lord. And we're going to trust him. When you can say with confidence, Jesus died and rose again, he is my Savior and my Lord. He delivers me and he reigns. And it's good news. The kingdom comes. Now, it's still challenged. Until Jesus returns, we believe Jesus will come back. And that's when evil will be completely eliminated. Praise God. But in the meantime, today, the kingdom is breaking in. And you and I can know something of this life that satisfies and When you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit, this presence we were singing about, comes into your life. And you have the very life of God within you. And it's rich and it's full and it's got meaning and purpose and peace and joy. It's wonderful and it's also eternal. (laughs) It never ends. The Jesus life never ends. So eternal life, Jesus would say, can begin today. If you can see him for who he is and say yes to him. Let's keep going. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, if you read through chapter 2, at first Nebuchadnezzar is kind of like, wow, that was, I mean, you would imagine you have a dream and somebody's like, I know what you dreamed last night. Nebuchadnezzar's pretty like, wow, your God's pretty amazing for a little bit. But then as he thinks about it, he's like, I don't like that dream at all. I don't like what you said. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? I think verse 1 is an exact response to the interpretation Daniel gives. King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes an image, but not of different. This one's only gold. My head was gold. The whole thing's gold. Head to foot, it's gold. And just in case anybody's getting ideas about some other kingdom, you're all going to worship this thing that I made. You're going to bow down. I'm going to get together some musicians, a really nice crew, and they're going to play a song, or maybe you'd even call it an anthem. And whenever you hear this thing, you're going to bow down, and you're going to worship. You're going to worship the empire. You're going to worship Babylon. You're going to worship the emperor. You're going to worship this idol that I've made. It's an obvious symbol. Nebuchadnezzar's saying, that dream, there's nothing coming after me. I'm in control, and my kingdom's the one that will reign. And he says, if you do not worship, 
this statue when the music plays, death. Right? Nebuchadnezzar loves, loves. I mean, that's part of Babylon. I mean, that's part of seeing Babylon is that Babylon leads you with fear, shame, guilt, and death is their ultimate weapon. I mean, that's just part of Babylon. That's why Jesus is such a different king, because he offers his life. <laughs> he doesn't threaten you with death. I mean, it's just radically different. But that's the way of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's threatening this stuff. And you've got these Jews who are trying to remain Jews in Babylon. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, I'm, we're not bowing down. And so this is where we're going to see some of the contrast. You've seen how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Well, how do these guys respond? Well, they come, verse 16, and they answer the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to do what? To deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And we have great confidence that he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember we talked about how Jeremiah said it's not going to be a year in Babylon. It's going to be 70 years. So find a way to make your home and seek the welfare of the city. And then we said, but the the Jews got too good at it and they started to look more Babylonian than Jewish. And so Daniel has written to try to help the Jews. Don't assimilate too much into Babylonian culture. Babylonian government says when we play our anthem, you have to bow down to our statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we can't do that. Look, look, we will, we, will, we will help you administrate, and we will help you govern. We will do what we can to lead to flourishing lives. We will seek the welfare of the city, but we will not bow down to your idol, and we will not worship you or your empire, because that would compromise our covenantal identity. So Nebuchadnezzar, again, just gets mad. And he says something crazy rational. Fire up the furnace seven times hotter. What does that even mean? How do you, I don't know, how how do you make it seven? uh, Okay, king, it's exactly, I mean, I don't know, whatever. But he's mad. Fire up the furnace. And he throws these three in there. But something happens. This God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego protects them. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yeah, yeah, true, king, we did. But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth, listen to this, is like a son of the gods. (laughs) Well, what's going on here? Well, let's just get it out of the way. Jesus is that, I believe he's that fourth man. He's that fourth man in the fire. It's an appearance of the word of God before he's the word made flesh. And I actually, I'm not going to say too much, but I was just thinking, it's just funny to me because Jesus knows the book of Daniel really well. When we read through the Gospels, you will see it again and again that the language, the story, this kingdom language, so son of man language, so important to, to Jesus and his ministry. And I just wonder, well, I, would just, I just wonder if Jesus just chuckled every time he read that. I know about that story. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It just, it's just funny to think about. Now, l- let's be honest. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fiery furnace seven times hotter, and they survive. Now, that's not the norm. 
is it? I mean, if we were to sit around and share stories from the history of the people of God, I think there's more stories of martyrdom than people walking out of furnaces. But these stories are important, and we don't want to run past them. Yes, they're extreme. But this is one of the things I love about the Jewish worldview. They teach through stories. So I think this happened. I think God can do this. I think he does do this from time to time. But he doesn't always do it in such an extreme way like this. But he does it. He delivers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God will deliver us. Why do they say that? Because they know their God. And the story of their people is that no matter how bad things get, their God will always deliver them again and again and again. And I actually invite you, I just want to pause a couple questions this morning just to think about. But can you remember a time when God rescued you? Has he ever helped you? Has he ever provided for you in a way that you never expected? It's one of the, I mean, you want to know how I, how I pastorally counsel people. It's one of the things I do with people. I sit with those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time and life is hard and it's really hard and I understand why it's hard. But then I look at you and I say, Have you ever had a hard time before in your life and Jesus was there? And I can honestly sometimes literally see a physical change in your, oh yeah. Yes, 10 years ago, really hard, Jesus. (laughs) Do you think he can, yes, he can, oh, thank you for reminding me. And if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, let me just tell you, give Jesus a chance. Because I, if you would let me say this as a pastor, That even if you don't know Jesus, he's already working grace in your life. And you might not realize it for a few years, but you will look back and see his hand of mercy. Because that's how good he is. The sun rises on all of us. Have you ever asked God to rescue you, to deliver you, to provide for you? He'll do it again. He doesn't have some limited amount. The kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. It's not like he's like, I delivered you yesterday. I got other things to do. That's not how God works. He's a God who loves to rescue. That's why we call Jesus Savior and Lord. And it's not just a one-time thing. Like, we need him to rescue us frequently. And he does. He's gracious. So don't forget, that's who your God is. When it seems like there's no hope, If we're going to remain Christian in a culture that doesn't want us to be Christian, we put our hope in God. We are people of hope. I'm not saying we never despair or never get depressed. I I, I want to be, human beings are complicated, but at the end of the day, we find our way through our despair to a place of hope. Does that make sense? We do it. I've seen you do it. I've seen people in situations where they have no earthly reason to have hope walk out of this church with hope because Jesus. (laughs) It's the only reason is Jesus. Let me say it this way. Faith does not mean everything will always turn out the way you want it to. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the furnace, but they didn't want to go in there. (laughs) But God delivered them through the testing of their faith, not from the testing of their faith. Our faith will be tested in a broken world. That's one of the ways we grow. And unfortunately, in a broken world, much of our growth comes through suffering. God will not always exempt us from suffering, but God will always deliver. 
I can't promise you that if you remain true to Jesus, if your allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone, I cannot promise that you will never suffer in the fire. The apostles suffered. There have been many people who were martyred for their love of Jesus. I can't promise that you won't suffer, but what I think Daniel 3 tells us, and I believe this to the core of my being, what I can promise you is that Jesus will always be with you. That Jesus will never forsake you. He may or may not deliver you from the furnace, but he will not forsake you. Why? Because he's filled. Paul says that if he, Jesus has filled all things with his presence. He's filling all things. And we know the story of Easter. We know that Jesus hangs on the cross for our sins. He forgives us. He goes to the grave. And in some mysterious way, Jesus overwhelms death with life. So if you and I even go to the fiery furnace of death, guess who's waiting for you? Jesus. Jesus somehow has filled death with his life. So you and I have nothing to be afraid of. Because Jesus will be with us wherever we go. Whatever fiery furnace you feel like you're in, whether it's three times hotter or seven times hotter, Jesus is there there now a few more thoughts why do we why do, why do we why do we talk about faith and hope why are we feeding on faith hope and love rather than what they're serving up in the kitchens of babylon well because well let me, let me talk a little bit about chapter you're gonna have to read chapter four on your own for the sake of time but i, I told you i want you to contrast daniel shadrach meshach and abednego with nebuchadnezzar in chapter four we're going to see the ultimate picture of it's really the ultimate picture of, of empire but Nebuchadnezzar is going to have another dream, and he's going to be so full of himself that he's going to become beastly. And actually, like, literally, like, eating the grass, like, crazy beastly. But it's, it's the theme of Babylon and empire in the Bible. That's why the book of Revelation, I tried to teach this a few years ago, that's why it's filled with beasts, because that's the metaphor for empire. There's these ravenous beasts who threaten with death, and then there's this little lamb who's slain. When we talk about beast power versus lamb power, the way of Babylon is the way of the beast. It makes you beastly. And in chapter 4, verse 27, the one sin that is called out from Nebuchadnezzar is that he forgets the poor, that he doesn't show mercy to the oppressed. In other words, he doesn't love his neighbor. He's inhumane. And so he becomes a beast. He becomes less than human. Or as we'll talk about these next 10 minutes or so, he breaks bad. I believe Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they break good. Nebuchadnezzar breaks bad. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I will face, in the last year and a half, certainly have taught us this. We will face pain, pressure, and disappointment. You can't avoid it or prevent it. We're not as in control of things as we think we are. Nebuchadnezzar, right when he reached the pinnacle of, look at what I've built and look at what I've in control of, becomes a beast. We're not as in control as we think we are. And we will experience pain. We will be under pressure. We will suffer disappointment. Obviously, not everything goes the way we want it to go. And the question that I kind of want us to think through as we wrap this up is, how do you respond to this pain this pressure, or this disappointment. Because how you respond determines whether you break good or break bad. 
The pressure is going to cause cracks. And you can either break bad like Nebuchadnezzar and those cracks just kind of, you become powder, you become chaff that blows in the wind, you become beastly, or you can break good and allow the grace and mercy of God to fill those cracks and give your soul depths you didn't have before. You become more than you are. Like Nebuchadnezzar, most of us, when we feel the pressure and experience the pain, our first instinct is to try to control things, to make things turn out the way we want them to turn out, to shape history according to our own agenda. And when we break bad, we try to control our future and we lose control, and there are all kinds of unintended consequences. Everything spins out of control, and there's unintended consequences, and we break bad. And that's when we experience jealousy or envy, or strife, or rivalry, or rage. That's when we're hustling for our identity and scrambling. We feel like we must be in control no matter the cost. So what's the alternative? I told you it's really simple to talk about. It's harder to do. But the alternative is really just to trust God. I know it sounds crazy, but we'll do a little thinking, and I think I'll help you. But Shadrach, read through chapter 3. Throw us in the fire. We trust God. We're not even going to try to talk you out of it. We're not going to try to manipulate or scheme. We're not going to give in to your fear. We're just going to trust God. We're going to live with what the Apostle Paul would call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what comes out of breaking good. But Nebuchadnezzar's rage comes out of breaking bad. We're going to learn from Daniel. We're we're going to not lean on our own understanding. We're going to ask God, God, give us wisdom. We're not going to be reactive. We're going to be contemplative. We're going to be patient. God, help us understand what's going on, and we're going to break good. We're going to trust God. That's how you break good. When you're afraid, when you're under pressure, when you're disappointed, trust God. Don't trust your own ability to control or manipulate or scheme or fight or or have it your way because that's when you break bad and that's when destruction follows. And you know that. The people of God are different. We we, we break good. So here's the the other question I want you to just think about. You, You can write it down if you want to think about it during the week. You don't have to say anything out loud. But I want I want to learn from the last 18 months. It's not what I wanted. But it doesn't mean God isn't working good. And so I want you to think, I know every single one of us at one point, maybe more than once in the last year and a half, broke bad. And if we're going to be a church that actually grows and changes, then we've got to be able to humbly learn from our stories. And I want you to reflect, when did I break bad? When was my fear the worst? When was my rage the worst? When was my jealousy? What was going on? My rivalry was out of control. My brothers and sisters were my enemies. Well, what was going on? And if you actually broke bad, I want you to try, with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, ask God, what was I trusting in? Was I trusting in money? Was I trusting in power? Was I trusting in reputation or relationships? What was I trusting in? And then repent. <laughs> Confess your sin of idolatry and repent and trust God and break good. Because <laughs> we are a church. There are, I mean, all of us broke bad. I don't know that I can say all of us broke. I know all of us. I broke bad. But I know a bunch of us broke good. 
I know a bunch of others. See, I know your stories. You broke good. You trusted God, and somehow you were strengthened. Somehow you went through a season of pressure, and there was more of you rather than less of you. God created depths to your soul. And actually, so we're going to begin a we're going to begin Advent the last Sunday in November. It's the new year. We're going to do a church year calendar thing. And sometime in the season of Advent, I'm going to do a night at church. And I got real I got real clever here. I'm going to call it the Fourth Man in the Furnace Night. How's that? Super catchy. Great bumper sticker. But I'm going to do it. I'll tell you what we'll plan it. I'll tell you when we're going to do it. I don't care if there's three people here or fifty. But we're going to gather together and we're going to be like Daniel. We're going to share stories that don't make any sense if we don't mention the name of Jesus. Because one, one of the things that breaks my heart as a pastor is that the coolest stories in our church I can't talk about. Because <laughs> they're personal. And they're not my story to tell, but they're the best stories. You guys come to me all the time and you're like, I'm sorry to burden you. I'm like, burden me? I get to see Jesus move. This is awesome. I wish our whole church could see this. So we're going to do a fourth man in the furnace night, and we're just going to come and we're going to share stories that don't make sense without Jesus. In fact, I was even, I was sitting with this a little bit longer, and I was like thinking through people who I think have broken good and people who have broken bad. And is this true? And I really do think it's true. The people who I think have walked away from the church, who have broken bad under pressure, are people who really didn't understand what it meant to trust Jesus. I I really, I mean, I, I, I would sit with them and What's your relationship with Jesus like? I don't really have one. I don't know how to trust him. And my heart breaks. Just trust Jesus. But there is a difference. And if you look at your own life, I think you can see the difference. You know when you're breaking bad and when you're breaking good. And you know why we call it bad and good, don't you? So let's learn from the last year and a half. Let's be a people who, yeah, we were broken, but let's break good. We'll probably break again. Let's break good again. Let's let the goodness of God overwhelm us. And I'll give you one homework assignment and then I'll be done. So last week we talked about fasting. I I hope some of you fasted from technology. I don't think you need to do it every week, but we do need to have technology use under control. But this week I want to give you another discipline. And by discipline, they're just things Jesus did. Jesus fasted. Jesus practiced solitude. I think if we're talking about trying to relinquish our control and our manipulation and our scheming, I think the best thing we can practice is solitude. This is what one, well, I'll tell you this. I hate solitude. I'm an extrovert. I hate it. And uh, I was in seminary, and for one of my spiritual formation classes, our, our professor said, I've got an exam. You can take the exam, or you can do six hours of solitude. And then he smiled and said, I know you're all going to do solitude, but I promise you the exam is easier. And I did. I did six hours. It was the hardest six hours. It's so Solitude's hard. You've got to build up. It's, it's not easy. I don't do six hours. I've never done that again, actually. <laughs> but solitude is where you just practice being. It, you walk in a park. You, you can listen to music or, or read. It's, 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 but, but you're just being. You're not trying to accomplish anything. You're just sitting with Jesus. And it's hard. As one author said, there's nothing that requires more energy for the typical American Christian than the discipline of doing nothing. The hardest thing you can get anyone to do is to do nothing. And this is what they said. The problem with solitude is not being alone. That's not our biggest problem. It's not being alone. It is convincing ourselves that we are unnecessary and that the world will not collapse if we go away. (laughs) Solitude is the discipline of letting go of our self-importance Letting go of our belief that we are necessary for the world to continue. 
So if you're looking for something practical to do this week, practice solitude. I don't care if you do it for five minutes or 30 minutes, but shut your phone off and just say, God, I relinquish being in control of my empire today, and I acknowledge that you are Lord. And that when I come back, and I know some of you are parents and it's different, but so take five minutes. I don't care, but, but find a space of solitude that says, God, I relinquish trying to run the world to you. And see, how, see what it does to your soul. And see if you return, the world's still moving. See if everything's collapsed or Jesus is still Lord. I think you'll find that Jesus is still Lord. And he reigns. And today's the day, right? The kingdom is coming in our midst. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we do. We are still on this journey to learn to be exiles in Babylon. And we want to make our home, but we want to make our home with you. You are with us in all the pressures of life. There's, there's cracks all around us, but we don't want to become chaff in the wind. We don't want to be powder that just blows away. We want those cracks to be places where your mercy and grace and love and forgiveness infuse us with your life. We want to be a people who break good. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but we want to be a people who rebel against Babylon with love and joy, peace and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what comes out of us when we break. We aren't raging with anger, threatening everyone like Nebuchadnezzar. We're not trying to control or scheme or manipulate. We're not assuming that we hold the power on who's king and who's not king. God, that's yours. And honestly, it's easy to say I trust God, but we're actually going to find it's hard. It's hard for us sometimes to lay down our sense of being the king or queen. But man, is it good. That's why we break good, because that's what we're designed for. It's so much better to let you reign, Jesus. So reign, Jesus. Would you reign in our hearts? Would you be Lord? Would you be our Savior? Would you deliver us? We trust you. We are going to be a people who, maybe there's reason to despair, and maybe we'll feel despair. I don't want to make this simplistic. But in the midst of despair, what I believe, if we can open our eyes together as a church family, we will see you're with us. We are unbound in your presence. And you will sustain us and you will get us through anything. And even if the enemy throws its worst weapon at us, the weapon of death, turns out you've overwhelmed that with life. So we have nothing to fear. That's good news, Jesus, and we say thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.